0: The following message, entitled, Believing Your Identity in Christ, Part 15 of the series, A Righteousness from God, was given by Joe Ryer on May 18, 2014 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Well, if you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 6. The title of this message is Believing Your Identity in Christ. Believing Your Identity in Christ. It's going to be based on Romans 6, um, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to assume something. I'm going to assume that you all are familiar with the story of Spider-Man. So anybody who's not familiar with that story, raise your hand right now. (laughs) I don't know if you're telling the truth. (laughs) So, Spider-Man. It's a great story. It's a fictional story about Peter Parker. I think it was written in the 60s, originally a comic book. And if you you know the story, young Peter Parker, he was a teenager. He was awkward socially in school. He was physically weak and he didn't fit in real well. And then, in um, a strange series of circumstances, he gets bitten by a spider and initially gets sick. But then, after he gets sick, He gets this incredible strength from this little spider bite. And one of my favorite parts of the different Spider-Man movies that I've watched or the the comic books is when he first discovers what has happened to him. He looks in the mirror and all of a sudden his his muscles are bigger. He goes to jump and he jumps like 20 feet in the air. He touches a building and climbs up the wall suddenly. And so from one event... All of this power is infused into His body. Well, that's a fictional story. But I share that because in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul wants to persuade us that when we trusted in Christ, something happened inside of us that was fundamental. That there was a fundamental change. A new power was placed inside of us from the Lord Himself that we did not have. And it's in that new power that we're to live our entire Christian lives. And at times, it's hard to believe that that fundamental change has occurred. So the Apostle Paul wants to persuade us. And that's why this is entitled, Believing Your Identity in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I I pray that every one of us who has trusted in Jesus would really believe and know and experience the power of this new life that You make so plainly clear that we have since the day we first trusted in Christ and were born again. Lord, I, I pray that would give us faith for all the the areas we still battle, the sins that we're tempted to. Lord, for those who who know You but are so discouraged by the same sinful patterns, I pray You give them hope and faith and power to change. And Lord, for those who don't yet know You, I, I pray that they would know You by the end of this message, that You would grant them spiritual life once for all. And Lord, we just look to You and ask this in Your name. Amen. Well, before Paul gets into this new life in Romans 6, verse 1, he anticipates a question. And the reason he anticipates this question, because if you've been coming here for a number of weeks, we've been going through Romans, and Paul has made this incredible case that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. He even says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, which Bob preached on, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, we believe what the Bible teaches, that faith alone in Jesus alone is what saves us. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our good deeds. We're saved by Christ. And then at the end of Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul writes, But where sin increased, grace Abounded all the more. So last week we got to hear how God's grace triumphs over our sin. So, with that background, the Apostle Paul is anticipating a question. And the question is this, found in verse 1. So, if all this is true, God's grace triumphs over our sin, and that we are saved completely by what Jesus has done, that's entirely true, then a question arises What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You can feel his, the, the, the people, the opposers who are saying, maybe the, the opposers in Rome who, who loved indulging in all the sins of the day. They might say, well, this sounds like a license to sin. A free pass. If we're saved by grace alone and faith alone, I can do whatever I want. Sin however I want. Indulge however I want. Because Jesus paid for it all. Or they might say, Well, Paul, you said, you said the very word of God says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So I'm going to go sin a whole bunch so that your grace, God's grace, will abound all the more. Paul wants to cut that line of thinking off immediately. And that's why he says in verse 2. Answering the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Different translations capture this different ways. The New American Standard says, may it never be. So if you look in your Bibles, it it probably has an exclamation point behind it. The King James Bible says, God forbid." And Paul's going to give us reasons why it may never be for a follower of Jesus Christ to have a license just to indulge in sin. Because he's going to tell us something fundamental occurred when you first trusted in Christ. So the first point, it's a short one. Should we sin like crazy because we're saved by grace alone? Here's a short answer. I want you to remember it for the rest of your life. No. No, you should not. By no means. May it never be. And Paul's reasoning may be a little different than than you might think. You might think, well, we're not to sin anymore because God is holy and He tells us not to. Well, that's true. There are good reasons not to sin. But the reason Paul's going to anchor this whole understanding of following the Lord and obeying Him is based on what happened inside of us. When we became Christians. So look at verse 2 again. He asks a question at the end of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? What's he, what he's going to do in verses 2 through, through 11, he's going to explain that when you turn to Jesus... A number of things happened inside of you, spiritually. And because that fundamental change occurred, he's asking this question, how, how could you even consider that? Because when you trusted in Christ, he starts with this big idea, you died to sin. Your relationship with sin changed. So for the remainder of this message, we're going to answer the question, what happened to us? When we trusted in Christ. What happened to us? What fundamentally changed? If you, you think of the image of Peter Parker when he became Spider-Man. There was a point in time a change occurred. And then he spent months and years discovering what, how, how deep did that change go? How, how far did that change go? Well, this morning I want you to be encouraged that a massive change, a fundamental change occurred in your life when you trusted in Christ. And the first part of that change that Paul tells us about is we died to sin. Our relationship with sin changed when you trusted in Christ. We died to it. Think of it this way. If I die today, my relationship with school taxes, property taxes, my mortgage my utility bills, they all change. I don't have to pay them anymore. I'm dead to them. So when they come calling, I'm not there. I died to those bills. I died to those responsibilities. The the county, the state, the federal government, I'm no longer in debt to them. I'm no longer a slave to them. Because I died. The relationship changed. Well, when you became a Christian, you fundamentally died to sin. The relationship changed. And, and I, I can hear your questions. You might think, well, it doesn't feel that way. We're going to get to that later on, probably in the next few weeks. I understand at times it doesn't feel that way. But what I want you to get is the reality is you died to sin when you trusted in Christ. Well, How do we know that? What happened? Look in your Bibles at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's he talking about here? If you're like me, when you hear the word baptism, you, you probably immediately think of water baptism. But that's not what he's talking about here. When he's using the word baptize, He's meaning as it literally means. It, the, the word baptized, to be baptized, means to be immersed into something. So when we water baptize someone here, we're immersing them into water. When, when someone baptizes a piece of cloth into dye, they are immersing that into the dye. And that's what he means, that, that when he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into to Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death. He's referring to the spiritual reality that happened when you trusted in Christ. You were immersed into Christ. You were so identified with Christ, you died with Christ, spiritually speaking. You were immersed into Jesus Christ. And this can be a hard idea to to get our minds around. A man named Ray Ortland Jr., um, he says it this way. By promising a surplus of grace for sinners, does the gospel throw open the door to more and more sinning so that grace may shine all the more brightly? No. Because grace unites us with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. When you were born again, when you became a Christian, you were so United with Christ, spiritually speaking, in such a way that we weren't aware of it. We might have thought, oh, our, our sins were forgiven. We're adopted as sons and daughters. But the Apostle Paul is telling us, no, a lot more happened than just our sins being forgiven. You were so immersed into Christ Jesus that you were immersed into His death. You were buried with him into the baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead. All that was spiritually happening when you became a Christian. And you might be thinking, well, what does that mean and what does it have to do with me? It means the old you died, the old you was crucified, the old you was buried. And if you lived a life like I did as a teenager, that means a whole bunch. That means all the enslavement of all the sins that I had done as a teenager into college. When I became a Christian, that Joe died with Christ. Was buried with Christ. The old man, the old person, the old you was crucified with Christ when you were born again, and made alive. That is wonderful news. And not only is it true that you died, but look at the end of verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're so identified with the death, with, the, with Jesus being buried, and with the resurrection, that we have new life in Christ. I can remember before I came to Christ, I would try to quit sinning, and I couldn't. I was a slave. I had no power. And then I remember when when Christ saved me, there was now power. There was the old Joe had died, and there was new life to obey and follow the Lord. That is wonderful news. I think at times we think so much about our positional righteousness that we are accepted in Christ, which is wonderful and we love it. That we we might not think enough about what has happened inside of us when you were made spiritually alive. That is a big deal. You have strength from the Lord Himself that began at the moment you were united with Christ. Now I know that that this is abstract and at times can be challenging to get our minds around. And as I was preparing for this message, I came across the, a, a true story from the Civil War that I think will help illustrate. How, how are we identified with Christ's death and Him being placed in the grave? How, how does that happen? Well, a man who wrote a book called Born Crucified, Ellie Maxwell, recounts this true story. He says, During the Civil War, a man by the name of George Wyatt was drawn by lot to go to the front, meaning he was most likely going to die in the Civil War. He had a wife and six children. A young man named Richard Pratt offered to go in his stead. So you got George, father of six, knows if he goes he's going to most likely die. Got a young man who is not yet married, Richard, a good guy, says, You know what, George, I will take your place. Well, before long, the young man, Richard Pratt, was killed in action. The authorities later sought again to draft George Wyatt into service. He protested, entering the plea that he had died in the person of Pratt. He insisted that the authorities consult their own records as to the fact of his having died in identification with Pratt, his substitute. So you see what happened? The man died in his place... They come looking, they knock at his door, George, they see him, he looks alive, we need you to fight. And he says, you know what, I already died. And you can imagine them scratching their heads, what do you mean you died? I'm looking right at you. Check your records, see if I died. So they go to check their records. And as they look at the records, here's what they they see. He insisted the authorities consult their own records as to the fact of his having died in identification with Pratt, his substitute. White was thereby exempted as beyond the claims of the law and further service, because as they checked the records, he had in fact died. He had died in the person of his representative. There we have the truth, this man writes, of the identification in a nutshell God's way of deliverance is through death through identification with our substitute in His death and resurrection. Obviously, we're still alive and we're aware that the sinful nature remains. But we really are so identified with Christ that when He died, you died, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so when sin tries to master you and call for you, or when friends entice you, you can say, I, I died. I died to sin. I can remember not long after I had become a Christian, and I was walking on Philadelphia Street on a Friday or Saturday night, and I was by myself, and I remember walking, and as I, I walked down the street, I saw a group of about 20 or so of my old friends heading uptown for a night of partying once again. And you know, I was a long-haired hippie. They were long-haired hippies, and... It was such a contrast because I was walking one direction and my old crowd was walking another. And they were excited to see me. And, and it was just such a clear picture that, that the old Joe died. I, I'm going in an entirely opposite direction now because of what Christ had done. It was me, but it was no longer me. And as they talked, they realized this is not the same guy. That old one died. He no longer lives for sinful pleasure. That's what happened to all of us. The old you died. Now there's remnants, there's temptations, but fundamentally, you died in Christ. And that is awesome news. But it's not just that we died. Look at verse 4. We too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, the old man, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We've, we've made, been made alive. If you've lived a messy past, be encouraged by what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And even if you haven't, your past was messier than you think it was. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you were made alive spiritually, the Bible says you were born again. The Bible's using creation language there. God who spoke the world into existence, spoke your spiritual deadness into life. You were made alive, spiritually speaking. So what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in newness of life? It means you, you no longer have to sin. You no longer have to obey the sinful nature. So when, when your child dumps their milk on the dinner table for the tenth time that morning, you don't have to get angry. You do not have to get angry. When an attractive person walks by you and you are tempted to lust, if you're a believer, you do not have to give in to lust. When everything you own begins to crumble and fall apart at the same time, and you are tempted to fear and worry for your finances, you do not have to give in to those thoughts. When you think about your life's circumstances, and you are just marked by fear. If you're a believer, the old fearful you died when you came to Christ. The anxious you died. If you are ruled and and enslaved by other people's approval of you and opinions of you, you no longer have to obey that if you are in Christ. The old you died. You are made alive. See how that changes everything? There was a fundamental change that occurred. And here's the thing, as Bob and I and Mark have talked about this at times, we're aware there there are so many Christians, ourselves included at times, that, that just find it so hard to believe that this is really true, that we really are changed from the inside out. Well, if you're a sports fan, and if you're not a sports fan, there's something called the NBA. National Basketball Association. My wife tells me whenever I do these sports um, illustrations, it doesn't relate to a lot of people. And I keep doing them because they make sense to me. So for those of you who like basketball, if you don't, I'll try to make some connections. Well, there's a guy named Kevin Durant. He just got the MVP for the NBA this year. MVP, most valuable player. Okay, So that means he's really, really good. And it means he's really one of the best playing in the game right now. Well, I watched a, an interview about Kevin Durant as he accepted this MVP award. Kevin Durant is now six foot 6'10". Um, he, what he can do with the basketball is, is incredible, particularly for a guy his size. And what was striking in the interview, he grew up in the D.C. area, um, was raised by a single mom, lived in poverty, and he said, all I wanted to do was be a rec league coach. I wanted to help kids. And what happened as he's telling this story in his acceptance speech is many different people from elementary school into junior high into high school, they had to tell him that he actually could play at the next level. He didn't think he would be able to play and do well in high school. He didn't think he would be able to play and do well in college. He didn't know if he could ever play on a professional level. And here he is accepting his speech of receiving the most valuable player in the NBA, he sorely underestimated his God-given gifts and abilities. And it says, in his sophomore year of high school, he grew from six one to six seven in a year period of time. So that got some people's attention, I'm sure. But but the point is, spiritually speaking, I think we can be a lot like him. Our bar is real low. He wanted to be a rec league coach. Nothing wrong with a rec league coach, but he is a world class caliber athlete, and he didn't recognize it. But I think it's Christians at times we we minimize and underappreciate what happened to us when you trusted in Christ. You were made alive. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. And so when you are tempted to sin, You really do not have to obey that sin. Which is why the Apostle Paul says, we know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you get the image of slavery? Of a master who is ruthless and cruel. All of us, by nature, were born enslaved to sins. Now some of us, maybe the grosser kind that society would say, that is wrong and criminal and sinful. But some of the more subtle kind of pride and arrogance and fear and worry and craving the opinions and approvals of others But nonetheless, we were born in Adam, slaves of sin. And you're either still in Adam, a slave of sin, or you're now in Christ, and you're free. You are free. Sin is no longer your master. The Apostle Paul got this. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We have a new Master. So when sin comes calling, you do not have to obey it. You do not have to listen to those sinful desires and temptations. Well, you might say, well, it feels like I do. And I understand that. But just like it takes faith to believe that we are forgiven of our sins, it takes faith to believe God's Word here, too, that, that a fundamental change occurred. When I was in high school and college, I worked at a grocery store called Festival Foods. i had to wear a tie and a dumb big hat. And, and I worked there for five or six years. And I had a boss who looked very boss-like. He had white hair. He wore a suit. He was very professional and intimidating. I had dyed hair at one point, and I was scraggly. And, and uh, he hired me, but, but I think I slipped through somehow. So him and I had an interesting relationship. And at one point, I was working in the deli, and an angry customer came up and was very upset that the deli was closed. I said, well, ma'am, I think you should shop somewhere else which is not what you're supposed to do um, if you work in the food service industry. So I got a nice one-on-one meeting with my boss and a written um, notice that if I ever do that again, my my job was over. Well, eventually I became a Christian. I still worked there, and I, I became a much better employee. But for years afterwards, whenever I would shop at that grocery store and I would see that boss, It put the same feeling in me that I had when I was a 16-year-old, not very good employee. But the reality was, he was no longer my boss. He no longer had any authority over my life once I no longer worked there. That's how it is with us and our relationship with sin. Sin is no longer your master. Satan is no longer your master if you are in Christ. You are free to obey Jesus. And there is power from the inside out to obey Jesus. And when you get that, when you really believe that, it changes everything. So what that means is, you leave here and your kids or your wife or a friend or a spouse or a boss or a coworker does something wrong, and you are so angry or tempted to get angry. To remember, as a believer, that's the old me. He or she was nailed to the cross, buried in the grave, and a new me was made alive. I don't have to give in. When you're just so worried about Bill's and life, you don't have to feed it anymore. You don't have to give in anymore. That old you was crucified and buried. When you're tempted to, to pride and say, "Look, look at what I've done. Look how great I am. Look how much money I have earned, or whatever the temptation would be. Think, no, that's the old me. The old me was killed on the cross and buried. And the new me is, is what Jesus has done. Or if it's simple pleasure and you are just, you used to indulge and now the temptation comes and you want to indulge again and friends from the past show up, you can think, no. That me was crucified, buried, and now I'm a new creation. That's all because of what Christ has done. And, and God wants us to believe our new identity in Christ, because it is wonderfully freeing. And then he concludes this section in verses eight through 11, that we are united with Christ's life here and now. Look at verses eight through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what Paul's doing here is he keeps kind of hitting the same themes over and over again because he wants the Christians in Rome, both Jewish Christians and Greek Christians, to get this. He wants us to get this. So in verse 8, now if we've died with Christ, if this is true, we believe that we will also live with Him. And that life started the day you became a Christian and it will carry into all eternity. We really... Believe that. You need to believe that you will also live with Him. That you've been made alive, and you will be alive forever, spiritually, with Christ. Verse 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Christ voluntarily, willingly died for sin. He's He's never going to do that again. That happened once for all. He paid for our sins, the sins of the whole world. The punishment for those sins was placed upon Himself. That was a one-time, once-for-all act. Hebrews makes that crystal clear. That will never happen again. So that's done with. Then verse 10. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. And because we're so connected and united in Christ, Paul concludes this section by saying, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, you've got to believe it. You've got to really believe what Romans 6, 1-11 through 11 says. And live that way. Consider it done. Sometimes people, Christians will say, I need to be delivered of this sin. If I could just be delivered of this sin, then all would be well. Let me tell you a little secret. You've been delivered of that sin. When you trusted in Christ, it happened. Both in the death and the resurrection. And so... God would say to you, consider yourself dead to sin. The next time you're tempted, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A pastor by the name of Dr. Richardson says this. He says, Jesus forever broke the sin issue before God for all and for eternity. Jesus broke the despair that comes with death. Christ's death once for all marked the end to eternal death for the believer. No one ever has to deal with sin and its death-dealing effect again. Jesus' death was a once and for all event on behalf of the believer. And so if you are in Christ, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And I just want to conclude with the question that Paul asked at the beginning. Romans 6, verse 1 and two. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let's pray and the band can come up. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help every believer to really believe and be amazed and find joy in the reality of this identification with You, both in Your death and Your resurrection. Lord, may that reality help us to fight against sin, and to pursue righteousness, and to serve You with joy and amazement, wonder, and may You receive lots of glory because of that. Lord, it is not our doing, but it's Yours. And we we thank You for it. Thank You for the truth of this passage. Lord, help us to just respond and worship and song to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.